Good evening, everyone. First of all, I just wanted to thank whoever put the flowers up here. They're, they're really a, a beautiful and wonderful addition to our meditation hall. So whoever it is, thank you. Tonight what I wanted to do is I wanted to uh, broaden our sense of this practice that we're doing together and to begin to see that it really does go beyond, it really goes beyond your own life, even in this moment. And, and I found that, that this kind of reflection and, and this addition has been really helpful for my life. So uh, I hope uh, for my practice and my life. So I, I hope it's also somehow beneficial for your practice as well while you're here at Vallecitos. And I wanted to begin by sharing with you a dream that I had. This is actually a dream that I had in Santa Fe when I was uh, putting together a, a similar talk. And it was in the midst of a resi residency there. It was an interesting dream. And you know how dreams are. They're, they're also weird. <laughs> so this is one of those dreams. So in the dream, I find myself... Uh, in this huge room, there's this very, very large room, and I'm milling around the room with all these other people. And also in the room is, uh, in the corner of the room is the Zen master I used to practice with. And he's just sitting there observing everything. That's all he's doing, he's just simply observing. It's actually quite fascinating. I haven't practiced with uh, the, the Zen master that I ordained under for over 10 years, but still literally probably at least once a week he's in my dreams. It's just amazing. So in this dream, what he's doing is he's simply observing. He's really just observing what's going on. And on, the si on one side of the room, there's, there's, some there's this entity that's there. And it's, it's, it's kind of difficult to, to describe, but it has these fiery colors of, of red and orange and it's very fluid. There's not like a specific shape to it, but it's upright and it's fluid and it, it's, um, it's this entity, you could say. And what was going on in the room is that individual people were going up to this entity and they were coming face to face to it. And they're trying to do something or other as they came face to face with this entity. But inevitably, each person that came up to it, they would disappear and they would no longer be seen again. And that was the feeling, is that once somebody came face to face with it, that was it. You would never see them again. That was final. Um, and people were going up there and trying all different kinds of things as a way to attempt to come face to face with this entity in the hopes, I think, of not disappearing so that they could actually come back. But whatever they did didn't work. And people kept on going up and doing this. And the, the other feeling that was in this room, too, is that I had the feeling that all of us were going to have to come face to face with this entity at some point. It was just a deal. If you're in the room, that's part of being in the room. And it wasn't like there was any, anybody saying, you have to go now. But everybody knew you, that you had to come face to face with it. Um, and again, the Zen master is just watching this, observing it. He's not being delighted. He's not pushing anything away. He's just observing all this. 
And it was, it was amazing to see the courage that people had when they came face to face with this. You know, they were really going up to see, see if something different could arise. And what occurred to me is when, when I noticed this thought really take place in my mind in the dream that I was going to have to come face to face with this, um, I thought to myself, I want to go to the beach. <laughs> I'd like to put off coming face to face with this as long as I can. <laughs> so I remember trying to gather up my stuff and trying to find the door out, but there was this feeling that the beach was close by. <laughs> but I really wanted to go to the beach. I wanted to go to the beach and I wanted to, um, it was interesting, I wanted to see my siblings. And so I was looking around and it was quite nice that I actually came and it was able to find my siblings in this huge room. And then I was gathering up my stuff to go to the beach. I want to go to the beach before I definitely did this. And uh, as I was leaving, the most striking thing um, was happening in front of this entity. And uh, again, it's difficult to describe. It was more this imagery. It it had this, this archetypal quality. And it was this, this archetypal image of family. And what it was, was these individuals all holding hands together. But it was one individual at the same time. So it was a family, but a one, in, one individual at the same time. And right before I was, you know, trying to get out the door to go to the beach, this archetypal image of family came face to face with this entity. And something turned and everyone came back that had disappeared through this entity. Who knows what it all means? You know, dreams are strange things, but they somehow reach farther than sometimes where meaning can go. But there was something about family. Something about going beyond just this being this separate individual that had a power to it. So again, my intention tonight is to speak to you about what you're doing here on this retreat, this, this practice of awareness and acceptance. I want to point out that it's not just about your own life. That actually this practice that we're doing together, here together in this community, goes much farther than your own life. And and I want to propose to you that it's somehow intertwined with family. And to even point out that it's, it's intertwined with a kind of family that goes beyond your family of origin. And, and I'll mention a few things that you might want to include or reflect upon in your, in your, in your practice here at Vallecitos that might help you get a sense of that if, if it feels right. Let me maybe put more simply and succinctly what I'm doing, just to be clear about the information I'm sharing with you. In some ways, all I'm doing is I'm going to be sharing with you stories. It might not sound like stories, but I mean, the, mean them to be taken as story. But hopefully a story that will, will help your practice. 
And where I'd like to begin uh, in order to, to convey this sense that this practice goes beyond your own life is to speak about this realm of becoming free of our habitual tendencies. These tendencies that bind us and oppress us that are in our lives. And I'd like to begin with a, another story. This is um, a story of a woman who... Uh, a fascinating story. She was, she was this woman that was... Um, she had been in a number of abusive relationships. And actually what began to happen is there began to be this cyclical pattern that she found herself in, kind of like the quality of that hamster wheel that we were talking about in the Q&A. So she'd get into abusive relationship and then finally, luckily, she would extricate herself from, from that violence, only to find herself once again in another abusive relationship. But then, actually, what she began to do is she began to really, truly, and deeply heal, to break this cycle, the cycle that she found herself caught in. And, and it was fascinating what she began to realize when, when, her, when her healing really started to take hold. What she began to realize is that this dynamic that she was breaking went back for generations and generations. It wasn't necessarily the same dynamic that was happening in every generation, but it had a similar flavor, the flavor of oppression and suffering. And, and also the feeling that started to come up is that she started to feel like she was stopping a dynamic that, that was not just about her own life, but was about the lives of many women in her, in her family. And she actually started to have dreams and, and she spoke about having this inner sense. And this is from her worldview. It might not fit with your worldview, but from her worldview, this actually palpable inner sense of feeling supported by her ancestors, especially the women in her family. And this feeling that they were proud of her. And that somehow they were being healed by her healing. So it was a kind of healing that extended beyond her separate sense of self. It was intertwined with the sense of family. This is deep healing. And some of you who've engaged in some deep healing or in this practice for a while might sometimes have gotten that sense that what you're, you're dealing with somehow extends far beyond you. So what I'm pointing out here, it, just to get you a feeling sense of this, is that we are more than these separate individuals, these separate isolated individuals. We, we actually carry our families along with us. Have you noticed that? Right. Have you noticed how many times at least the healing that can happen in this practice or the healing in other realms, which is another, I just want to point out, this is an important aspect of the spiritual path. Awakening really can't happen without healing. 
But you might have noticed that the healing aspect of the spiritual path or the healing aspect of your life, um, many times it's coming to, to terms with those dynamics that are in our family of origin that we've somehow inherited. You know, we carry our families along with us. We carry the unhealthy tendencies, the hurts, the woundedness, the pains that are passed down from generation to generation. And you might notice that when you engage in this practice, in this path, you might notice that you begin to become free of these long, enduring dynamics. That this can really happen with the simple practice of awareness and acceptance. So it's as if these, these long-standing dynamics, they begin to stop. And what I mean by that they begin to stop is it's not like that stuff doesn't arise in our minds or in our emotions any longer, but we don't get hooked, hooked by them as much or they pass through quicker. And, and I just want to point out what a radical thing that you're doing when you come to a retreat like this. When you reflect on your own habitual tendencies that aren't serving you, what a radical thing to spend over a week simply being aware of them and accepting them. Has that happened generation after generation after generation? Probably not. There's a, a radically different relationship to these habitual tendencies that we've inherited. That's a huge step. That probably hasn't happened for generations and generations. I feel like this is a really important thing to remember, especially when we're dealing with the difficulties sometimes that arise around our habitual tendencies. Right? They can feel so overwhelming, so overpowering. They feel stifling. But there can be a little bit of relief thinking, wow, this has been going on probably for a long time. And what a cool thing that I'm here making a difference with this. That it's somehow, in some way, going to stop with me. That I don't have to perpetuate it. This is what happens when we engage on this path in this practice. And again, I'm not saying that we might feel like we become completely free of these, but we're creating a different relationship to them, which I think has a huge influence. And I want to point out... I don't want to give our families all the bad rap because sometimes what we also begin to notice, this is more in the healing realm, but it's, I just want to acknowledge this. This is going to be important for some other things I'm going to mention later on in, in the talk in, in terms of some parallels. But we also luckily inherit some good stuff too, which I think is very important to acknowledge as we get a broader sense of what we carry around with us and as we get a broader sense of this practice. But that's what I've noticed the more that I've engaged in the healing aspect of this path. That there's some good stuff from my family that I'm so grateful for. 
You know, for me, for example, what I recall is uh, one of my grandmothers. She was um, a German Jew who uh, ended up marrying into a Catholic family, which is not the easiest thing to do when you come from a Jewish background. And not only that, she had to live in Dixon, Illinois. I don't know if you know Dixon, Illinois. Dixon, Illinois is the hometown of Ronald Reagan. (laughs) It ain't known for its liberalism, and it's not known for its openness to outsiders. And in, in, that, in that town, it was really fascinating. When she was living there, raising my father, um, there was a number of Korean families that moved to Dixon, Illinois. And of course, they were not well accepted at all, being outsiders in a different color. And she was you know, one of the few people in the community that spent a lot of time trying to help them out. In particular, what she did is she was teaching the adults in the family English and helping the kids get by so that they could integrate more easily so that they could um, get by. And I think what that was is the value, first of all, knowing what it's like to be on the outside, being a Jew for generations, and this value of helping those people without any power. I'm so happy to have inherited that. And in some ways, I think that she passed that on to my father. My father, again, you know, he told me recently his biggest hero was um, Archbishop Romero from El Salvador. Some of you might know him, but a, a beautiful example of a, of a person who literally gave up his life for the, for the fight for people who had no voice. So I want to point out, yes, we inherit the good things too that can help our spiritual path. It doesn't stop there though. We carry more than just our families with us. We carry the lineage of place. We carry the lineage of this country. We carry the lineage of the culture or cultures that we grew up in. And it's the same way. We carry the collective wounds and the collective unhealthy tendencies that can arise on the level of nationality or culture or even place. You know, it's true, we have some, some real benefits here. We have a, a relative sense of freedom here, of political freedom. But we also have the past of slavery and other forms of oppression. And we carry all those with us as well. And, and, and I, I want to um, also point out that we carry also in some ways these wounds... Um, from the place or the earth that we, we stand upon, which I think is important to acknowledge. And, and this is, I think this is spoken uh, most beautifully in a poem by Wendell Berry. This is a, it's a poem entitled History. And the speaker in this poem, I, I think, is really realizing his connection to the land in this, this passage. And again, it's getting, giving us a sense that we carry more than just our families with us. We carry this land with us in some way, and it's history. And this is what he says. He says, all the lives of this place has had all the lives of this place has had i have i eat my history day by day bird butterfly and flower pass through the seasons of my flesh 
I dine and thrive on offal and old stone, and am combined within the story of the ground. By this earth's life, I have its greed and innocence, its violence, its peace. Do you hear how he's talking about his connection with the ground itself? And I feel what he's, what he's talking about that is he's realizing that he's inextricably intertwined with, with all that's happened to her and all that she carries. Even the violence that she's endured, the environmental degradation, that's part of him. That's what he's eating. That's what we're eating. That's what we're carrying with us. And I believe, and I, I really see that, that when we truly and deeply engage in this practice, I feel like it has the potential in reverberating in all of these realms, these collective realms of culture, of family, of place, of land of the country that we live in. If we carry these collective tendencies, then we have the opportunity to relate to them in a different way. What's that different way? It's, it's what we're doing here on this retreat, to be aware of them. Again, we need to work to be aware of them, to be aware of them, and to bring kindness to them. So that there can be a new way of being in this world, not only for ourselves, but for ourselves collectively. And, and please don't get me wrong. I'm not, gonna, I'm not saying that if we sit and sit and sit, all the world's problems are going to go away. <laughs> there will be all this love and light, and then there will be no more climate change. I think that's childish thinking. And at the same time, I do feel like it's profound because we're addressing the roots of all the problems that arise in this world. And I feel like it does bring more peace and equanimity and love into this world. And it's not the whole solution as well. So I, I want to fit this a little bit more closely into uh, this retreat and what we're engaging on in this retreat. And in particular, I, I want uh, to say, tell a story, another story about what we're doing here in a way is beginning to enter into this bigger family that I'm talking about. But also we're getting a different flavor of it as well. And we get a a different flavor of family that can be so transformative. So I want to, in particular, speak about this sense of going beyond our separate sense of self that arises in this practice. And, and I think Eric has already given us some beautiful descriptions of that. 
For example, last night when he was talking about being in that beautiful place that was so sacred to him and the description that he gave of, of, of that quality of non-separation or whatever you want to call it. And I, I want to share with you a little bit, some more descriptions of what it is to go beyond our separate sense of self. And I want to make it a little more basic. I really want to point out that this is something that all of you have experienced while here on retreat. And, and I, I really want to point this out. And, and so, yeah, let me just give you some examples. And I think you might be able to, to relate to this a little bit. The first example I, I want to give you is uh, through a poem, which I, I feel exemplifies what you might have experienced, even if it's for a moment on this retreat. It gives us a sense of going beyond ourselves, our separate sense of self. And it's a haiku by Basho. And it's three lines. It's very simple. And it goes, tired, seeking an inn, ah, wisteria flowers. Again, tired, seeking an inn, ah, wisteria flowers. The way I imagine this poem is, is I imagine Basho traveling. It's probably dark. It's evening. He's tired. He's looking for an inn and he can't find one. And probably all he can think about is wanting an inn where he can rest. And he's stressed out about it. This is the story going through his head. And then there's the turn in the haiku, Right? where he's torn out of this story and there he comes face to face with Osteria flowers. He comes into the direct experience of this moment. There's a moment of freedom there. There's a moment where he goes beyond his separate sense of self. Because you might notice that what I'm equating with a separate sense of self are these stories we get lost in. That's how we create this separate sense of self is we live in the world of story and description. And so he has a moment of that where he comes face to face with the wisteria flowers. A moment of freedom on some level. And I'm sure many of you have had the experience where the story gets dropped and you're simply feeling the breath. Or there's a moment where there's not the story and there's the sound of the bird. Or the experience of seeing a flower. Or the sound of a river just for a moment, right? It's really simple. I know it doesn't feel so profound and dramatic, but that's what happens in this practice. It's a significant moment. And I think it's something that all of us have tasted, even if for a moment, of going beyond our separate sense of self. And again, this is something that Eric was speaking about last night, about resting in our direct experience, kind of that experience before perception. Perception meaning that quality, that, that activity of mind that names, names experience. So there's the direct experience of the tree before getting lost in the thought, oh, this is a tree. And the thought, this is a tree, still might arise, and we could still be le- left resting more in the direct experience. But again, that's going beyond our separate sense of self. We're not lost in the story. We're with our experience. We're not lost in description. We're with it. 
And I want to point out there's nothing wrong with description or stories. I'm telling you stories tonight. There's nothing wrong with them. The problem is, is when we get lost in them. And I want to share with you one other description, which I feel is in, uh, uh, striking. This is from Joanna Macy from her memoir. which is yet another flavor of going beyond this, this separate sense of self. And this takes place, she's riding a, a train in India. I don't know if any of you have been to India and know what it's like riding a train. It's um, quite an experience, right? To say the least. So here she is, she's on this train. And uh, just so you have an image of it, in, in trains in India, sometimes you can get these these sleeper bunks where you're, a little bit above everyone else. So you can be lying above them and then the, everybody's packed in underneath you in a way. So I think she's up in one of these sleeper bunks. And she says, Directly beneath me, a large, garrulous family unpacked an endless series of containers, thrust up redolent wads of rice, curry, melting banana. Accepting a chapati, I drew up my feet and disappeared behind a book. I wanted to affect as total a withdrawal as possible while the light still permitted me to read. I wanted to banish from my mind the last half hour and erase the whole teemingful carriageful of humanity, its jabber and clamor and smells. In other words, she was feeling a little bit of aversion, just to put it in the language. So there she is in the world of aversion. But then it, it switches. This is important. So remember, right before this, she's in the midst of aversion. She wants to banish this whole experience out of her, out of her life. But, but then there's a turn, which is really quite fascinating. She says, My breathing deepened, each breath filling more of my body as if to ground and steady me for a physical challenge. My mind stilled in wonder, for the thing that then occurred seemed outside of its control. Suddenly, I was no longer enclosed inside my body, but I wasn't outside it either. It seemed to be silently exploding, expanding to the point where everything else was inside it too. Everything out there, each gesticulating, chewing, sleeping form, each crying baby and coughing heap of rags, and the flickering, swaying carriage itself was as intimately my body as I. I turned inside out like a kernel of popcorn shaken over the fire. My interior was now on the outside, inextricably mixed with the rest of the world. And what I tried to exclude was now at its core. You getting the sense of this, this, this description she's giving us? That her interior was now on the outside inextricably mixed with the rest of the world. And what I had tried to exclude was now at its core. Again, going beyond a separate sense of self and actually beginning to sense into a bigger sense of family. Another image that comes from the 
Avatamsaka Sutra. It's a Mahayana Sutra, the Flower Garland Sutra, which gives us this sense of the world that we might be really living in and that we get a sense of as we do this practice. And it's this uh, metaphor, this image that's, that you might be familiar of Indra's net. And Indra's net, for those of you who don't know, it's, it's, uh, it's this net. And at each note of the net is this jewel. And every one of those jewels at each node, and, and also the Indra's net goes on infinitely in all directions. So it's an, an, a net that is boundless. It knows no bounds. So in every direction, it goes on for, for infinity. And then at each node, there's a jewel. And within each jewel, that singular jewel that's at, at one of the nodes is reflecting all of the other, uh, all the other jewels on the net. So then if you go to another jewel, you would see in it reflected all of the other jewels. So this image, this feeling sense of inner being, of interconnectedness. There's no such thing this, this sense of a separate sense of self, that we're isolated individuals, is just an illusion. It's a dream. Indra's net is giving us a different feeling sense for the world that we live in. And I want to point out here, if if it is true that that's the sense we get of reality, that it's somehow like Indra's net, then inevitably, while we're doing this practice, we are inevitably intertwined with all other beings. That we're inevitably actually holding hands with all other beings while we practice. There's no way around it. That's the way it is. And I, I feel like this is important because sometimes there can be this worry that we're being so self-centered when we're engaging in this practice of mindfulness, of being aware and accepting. And from the sense of Indra's net, I want to point out when we're practicing awareness and acceptance, what you're doing on this retreat, it is impossible to have a self-centered practice. It's not going to happen. So if you have this feeling of, no, I want this practice to only be self-centered and I only want it to be completely about me, it's not going to happen. It's impossible. That's just the nature of the world that we live in. I want to point out another um, another reflection that can help our practice from all of this. And I want to go back to what I was explaining, that, that somehow we carry more than just this separate sense of self with us, that we carry our families along with us, that we carry this land, that we carry this culture along with us. And and realizing that what, we, what, what arises in our practice are really just many of the things that we've inherited. We've inherited all of this. And I feel like this is important to see so that you can begin to see. I find a relief that comes with this because then I can begin to see that all this stuff that's difficult that's arising in my practice, 
It doesn't have any, anything to do with me. It has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with the sense of myself being a separate, isolated individual. And what a relief. Have you noticed what a drag it is to take all these difficulties so personally? It's the big bummer that we're trying to become free of. Phew. For better or for worse, this is just the inheritance package. I think it's also important that sometimes we can take all the good stuff that arises in our practice personally as well. And at first, it actually doesn't feel that bad. It actually feels pretty good. (laughs) But in essence, we begin to see that there's a constriction around that, a kind of oppression. So there too, we don't have to take it personally. And so what can begin to arise from this, this broader sense of this practice is actually a quality of equanimity, where we can have a sense of balance about what's arising, no matter what it is. And, and so just a few words about this quality of equanimity, which is a, a wholesome quality of mind that begins to arise as we engage in mindfulness. It naturally arises. And it begins to percolate into our lives. One way to convey the sense of equanimity is, I find, uh, which can be really helpful, is if you think of a statue of the Buddha. And a lot of times the posture that we see in those statues is that it's not too rigid, so it's not braced, but it's not collapsed. This is very important in terms of equanimity. So equanimity is somehow between that. It's not facing our difficulties in the world from a state of collapse where we can't bear it any longer and our system has collapsed. And it's not like we have the sense of steadiness as a result of bracing against the vicissitudes of life. But somehow there's a, there's a fluid balance that's within the mind and the body. The, the Pali word for, for equanimity is upeka, which, which literally means on looking. So it's, it's having this, this broader view of what's arising, what's arising and passing away. So it's overlooking a situation. The, the image that helps me is, is uh, that I use to explain this is where I live in Flagstaff, I can, it's really quite nice, I can ride my bike and it, 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 just about five minutes from where I live, I can be in the forest. And so I can ride my bike and then I can hike up uh, the mountain that's right in Flagstaff there, Mount Eldon. And I can get up high enough, because it's rather steep, to overlook the city. And I find it so relieving to get up there at times and just overlook the city that I live in. Because what I notice is just seeing that, having a distance and a broader view where I'm overlooking it, looking it over, I end up not taking all the pettiness that I get involved in while living in Flagstaff so seriously. Because it's so small. I can see it all right there from, from the mountain. Sometimes equanimity has that feel to it, a, a clarity to it, to the world that we live in, and a balance. So, so equanimity might come 
might arise with having more of this broader view. To put it simply, it's just seeing that this is the way it is. And again, I want to point out that, that seeing that this is all the stuff that we inherit and that actually the things that arise in our practice is just a result of causes and conditions, again, can, can allow the mind to be a bit steady. How does this work? So, for example, um, maybe you, you come here in here in the early morning after drinking maybe just a little bit too much coffee. There's the condition also of not getting the best night's sleep. And then there's the whole family history there, of course, in the mind and the cultural history of wanting to accomplish and succeed. And then you have the conditioning of awareness and acceptance and wanting to be good at it. And you sit down on the cushion and there's some noises that the mind finds distracting. And all of these conditions come together and then what starts to arise out of those conditions is, um, is this little seed of self-criticism. And then it grows and it grows and it grows and ta-da, then we have this full-blown experience of self-hatred or despair. And how does it arise? Again, in some ways it has nothing to do with me. Those are the conditions that are there that allow it to arise. It's like those are the ingredients and then it gets put into the oven and then we get this unpleasant baked bread of self-criticism. Ta-da! Here you go. With awareness and acceptance, what begins to happen when we add those ingredients into the dough there, it's as if the awareness and acceptance begins to um, turn off the oven so that the ingredients can continue to move through in a more fluid manner and not congeal into things that can be so oppressive. But, but it really is, it's just about causes and conditions. There's nothing to do with me here as a separate sense of self. Okay. So, I want to go through this other stuff. It's going to, please bear, bear with me another five or ten minutes. I, I feel like this stuff is... Um, it might be helpful. I, I, I want to show that uh... well, let me skip that. <laughs> it's a very cool idea, but it's, there's, there's more important things here. Yeah, let's get let's get the important stuff here. So. What are the things that can help with going beyond a separate sense of self and also to help cultivate um, at the same time this feeling of how we're intertwined into some kind of what I'm calling bigger family? So what's the first thing I'm going to say? Thank you. <laughs> I know. It's this practice. You, know, you be aware and you accept things and you practice mindfulness and you sit down and you walk. Um, I think Eric and I have spoken about that. <laughs> so there we go. But it, it, I, I know, it, uh, I, it's important what we're doing. And, and I, I want to say that it really is central. I'm going to mention some other things, but again, I can't, 
this is a powerful practice and it can it can lead to a different way of viewing the world and a different way of being in the world a different way that i feel embodies a lot of what i'm speaking about tonight so so please don't inter- underestimate what you're doing here even though it doesn't feel like it's doing a lot it is doing a lot some other things that have helped me though um that can be an adjunct to this core practice that we're doing and and one is getting a feeling that being on a spiritual path is in some ways entering into a different family a different lineage a lineage that's got some good stuff going for it and and I want to point out one that doesn't exclude our family of origin but but it's actually a different kind of lineage a different kind of family than just our family of origin it's a lineage of awakening I remember I, uh, when I got a, a feeling sense of this. It was during my ordination, and um, it was during my ordination. At the beginning of the ordination, what happens is uh, the one who's getting ordained. I went over to my parents came to my ordination, and I went over to where they were sitting, and I had to bow down to them three times, which was a powerful experience. It's a, it's a, it's a powerful experience for me, and I think it's. Uh, very powerful for parents that have to go through it. It's so I think it's so moving that I remember after living there for a while, when somebody was getting ordained, we all wanted to sit in a place where we could see the faces of the parents because they didn't know it was coming, and it was a big deal. And uh, yeah, there was something powerful about putting my head to the ground where my my parents had had, had walked. Uh, and I feel that the, that bowing represented two things. One was my gratitude. They had brought me in the world and they had given me a life where I was eventually exposed to the Dharma. That's huge. Really deep gratitude. But it was also a way of acknowledging that I was entering a different family. Because especially in Zen, it's all about lineage. A different lineage where my family of origin wasn't excluded, but it was a different family I was entering. And so it was this sense of, of, of lineage. And, and I want to point out that you too have entered this lineage. When we do this spiritual practice that we're doing, I want to point out that this practice extends back thousands of years. And what has kept it going? This is important. All of those texts and books on Buddhism have not kept this practice going. The quote-unquote teachings of the Buddha that we find in books, that's not what kept it going. What's kept it going is practitioners just like you and just like me. This is very important to see, that, it, that, that, that we are the ones that maintain this, this lineage and we're a part of this lineage. So when you enter into this, there's that vastness of what we're doing. So, so many times we exclude ourselves from this practice, that somehow we feel like we're unworthy to wake up, that we're not part of this lineage. But when you engage in this, you're part of it. I, I want to uh, really drill this in. And I want to share with you actually a quote from um, Annie Dillard, from Holy the Firm. And, and I think she's, asking this question which is an important question she's using christian language but it's an important question she's asking and the answer she gives is really important she says who shall ascend into the hill of the lord 
or who shall stand in his holy place? In our words, what she's asking is, who's going to wake up? Who's going to be liberated? And she, she replies, there is no one but us. There is no one to send, nor a clean hand, nor a pure heart on the face of the earth, nor in the earth, but only us. A generation comforting ourselves with the notion that we have come at an awkward time, that our innocent fathers are all dead, as if innocence had ever been. But there is no one but us. There never has been. Do you hear what she's getting at? We can have the notion that we're too imperfect to actually be liberated. We're too imperfect to wake up. But th there's been no one but people like us that have treaded on this path just like you're doing on this retreat. They weren't any more perfect than you. I guarantee it. We need to come to see this, that we, we are the holders of this practice. And we get to inherit this family. I feel like this is so important. This is so important for me to remember that I'm on a, on a path of awakening that has this lineage. Because it reminds me, again, something that I always emphasize. I don't wake up by myself. I wake up is a delusion. We wake up. We wake up together. It's the only way it has been. It's the only way that it will be. And when we practice, we not only practice in a way that heals and awakens ourselves, but allows a practice that continues into future generations. And, and one way this is expressed, and again, this is something that, that you can bring into your practice, which I, I feel is so important. And it's this altruistic intention. It's placing an altruistic intention maybe before you sit or after you sit. This is really important. Friends of mine who are Tibetan practitioners who come and practice Vipassana, they're horrified by the way we practice. In particular, they find it shocking that one would sit down and begin to meditate or they find it shocking that there would be teachings given without placing an altruistic intention in one's mind before one begins. It just boggles their mind. Like, how can you practice without an intention to save all beings, or that this is about all beings? I don't get it. And luckily, we're catching on in Vipassana. That this is, this is really the heart of the practice, and I, I, you'll, you'll probably notice as your practice unfolds, it becomes such a natural... Um, uh, tendency of the, of the heart to want to, to have this intention. And so I just want to share with you a, a very beautiful expression of this. This is from uh, a book called the Bodhicharya Vatara by uh, Shantideva, the, the Way of the Bodhisattva. It's probably the most popular book in Tibetan Buddhism. It's the Dalai Lama's favorite, favorite book. And this is, is an expression of this. It's poetic. Again, we don't have to take it literally, but there's a power to it. There's just a, a passage of it where he's talking about the spirit of awakening. 
And he says, this is his intention. May I be a protector for those who are without protectors. May I be a guide for travelers and a boat, a bridge and a ship for those who wish to cross over. May I be a lamp for those who seek light, a bed for those who seek rest. And may I be a servant for all beings who desire a servant. To all sentient beings, may I be a wish-fulfilling gem, a vase of good fortune, an efficacious mantra, a great medication, a wish-fulfilling tree, and a wish-granting cow. Just as earth and other elements are useful in various ways to innumerable sentient beings dwelling throughout infinite space, so may I be, in various ways, a source of life for the sentient beings present throughout space until they are all liberated. A beautiful expression of this altruistic intention. Now is just a way of ending. I, I, I want to end by uh, really expressing to you the real reason why I wanted to give this talk to you. And, uh, and I feel like I can say this because now I've had interviews, I think, with almost all of you. Um, so I know this for a fact. I'm not making this up. The more I get a sense of the depth of this practice, when I sense, sense all that you carry along with you, that that's real, what you're carrying with you. And I see more and more the power of awareness and acceptance, the power of the practice that we're doing together, of what we're actually stopping, what we're allowing the world to become free of. I'm deeply moved. I'm deeply moved by your practice. So thank you for your effort. So let's sit for just a few minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.